0: Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are inside the mind of an acquirer. We're going to sit down with Kevin McCardle, who has an impressive track record of acquiring over 45 companies, three of whom were former Built to Sell Radio guests which is exactly why we wanted to bring Kevin on the show today. But before we get there, a quick word from today's sponsor of the show, Scribe Media.
1: You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector, and so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book, or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today.
0: Also, a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have the opportunity to leave a rating and review. Reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more people just like you. Also, as you're going to hear in today's episode, Kevin makes references back to some of those past guests who sold their business to him. And if you head over to our show notes page over at built I have linked all of those episodes along with all of the definitions for some of the more technical terms used in today's podcast. Now, as you prepare to sell your business, there's a good chance that you're going to come across or be approached by a private equity firm, which is why in today's episode, Kevin and John will explore what PE firms look for when acquiring businesses, potential pitfalls to avoid when engaging with an acquirer, the difference between a holding company and a private equity group, and tactics to ensure you get the best value for your business during your exit. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's conversation with Kevin McArdle. Enjoy.
1: Kevin McArdle, welcome to Built Cell Radio.
2: Thanks, John. Good to be with you again.
1: I've wanted to have this conversation for a while because two of our past guests, Laura Roeder and Arvind Danielle Carl, sold their company to you. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear from the other side of the equation, what it's like to to buy businesses from Built to Sell Radio guests. Yeah, Thank
2: you. For that's going. really fun. And I'm a big fan of all those people. And yeah, it's I love telling both of those stories just because it uh, makes me smile, as you can see now on the video.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you bought, we were talking offline, you bought 45 different businesses, big and small. You've also sold a Few of those companies, and so I'm going to ask you for our conversation today to kind of wear your business buyer hat. I'm going to ask you questions about, you know, what do you look for in a company? What are some of the do's and don'ts from an like from a buyer's perspective? What you see entrepreneurs doing, both good and bad, so mm-hmm. if folks are looking to try to think about and get inside the head of an acquirer. They can they can use your advice. But before we get there, I'd love for you to just explain in layman's terms. Your business model? Like, how do you make money?
2: Yeah, so it's actually pretty simple. We are a software holding company. So we're focused on acquiring software businesses, you know, north of a million in annual recurring revenue. Um, And it's a buy and hold model. We want to acquire and operate great businesses, and we are under no obligation to ever sell those businesses.
1: So, how do you make money then?
2: Uh, We're buying profitable businesses. So the money is built into the model. Uh, And if we're good at our job, we buy a business that's successful and profitable and we can help make it more successful, whether that means grow faster or be more profitable or ideally both.
1: And do you buy 100% of the company or a portion of it? What's the structure like? We like to buy
2: 100% of the company. So we're looking for software founders who have decided for whatever reason that they're ready to sell. We uh, really like, and it's a pretty hard requirement that people help us with a transition period. So anybody that wants to sell a business and then disappear a week later, that's hard to pull off uh, having you know done this a number of times. Um but we're happy to have a founder who wants to help, you know, sell a business, transition the team, make sure their customers are happy, make sure we know how to operate the business, and then go on and do whatever they want to do. We also um, are open to founders who want to stick around a little bit longer. But the 100% acquisition is the ideal model for us.
1: So, okay, so let me let me look at let me think about as a company I'm fairly familiar with. It's sort of like the darling of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Every Canadian investor, I think, holds it in their pension plan. It's a company called Constellation. Yes. And they are a software holding company, as I understand it. Yep. They buy companies. And so they have become like the darling of the stock market for a few reasons. One, they buy cheap. Like they buy at really low depressed valuations. Like like really low Mm -hmm. and then they raise prices is one of their playbooks. They also, uh, scrape dividends. So they buy profitable companies. So Mm -hmm. they're buying them low. And then they're accretive for their stock because you get to apply sort of like a publicly traded multiple to, uh, a fairly small business which is usually trading at a very low multiple. Yep. So how would how would your company Big Band Software be different than say a Constellation?
2: Great question. So first I knew exactly where you were going when you mentioned the Toronto Stock Exchange because I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Constellation Mark Leonard, who I think just recently stepped down as CEO, but is still on the board. Um, I read everything he publishes, which unfortunately it boils down to like one letter a quarter, but um, have been a big fan of theirs for a long time. Now, what is uh, what is different? They've been doing this for 27 years, and so they've built into this intergalactic scale that's you know mind blowing. They're an act- acquisition machine. Like I, I think I heard somewhere that they might acquire 160. Businesses in a given year. Like, that's a, that's a scale that, like, we are not even close. Um, and they, uh, you know, what else is different? Like, they, um, they I think I read that Mark Leonard only sold one business in his career and he regrets it and he's tried to buy it back. Now, um, cynical Kevin might say, well, it feels like that's kind of marketing. Like, sure, you've had some failures that you sh- could shed, but you don't want to because you want to tell founders, I've never sold a business. Um, but like the buy and hold is their model, right? So like, that's, I'm a believer in buy and hold. Um, now what is, what, where I think our model is a little different, obviously earlier stayed, uh, you know, we're, we're newer, you know, with the business. Um, we believe in buy and hold, but I like to say buy and hold is a business strategy, not a religion. You know, if we buy a business and we run it for five, seven years and we think it's worth X. And some strategic acquirer wants to come and will offer us two or three X, whatever we think it's worth. Like I'm going to have that conversation and we might end up selling. Uh, but our intent is to buy and hold for as long as we can. Um, so other sort of like, uh, you know, so I'm flattered by the, the, uh, comparable. also we don't intend to be like a dirt cheap buyer. Um, I would love to buy businesses that are. Healthy, growing, profitable, and often they command a you know pretty nice multiple or premium in the in the world. And if if it fits our model, I'm happy to pay that. So that's the one, you know, and and the so one knock on constellation is they're like the buyer of last resort, as I've heard them referred to. I don't know if that's fair or unfair, but that's sort of a a a a seller and intermediary box that they could put in. I don't want to be in that box ever. Um and uh they Um, they get knocked for not being able to achieve organic growth. So if you're reading the the stock analysts, like that's the one flaw people can find in their model. And our model assumes we can buy a great business from a founder who's ready to move on and then help that business continue to grow. Um, So anyway, lots to like, Uh, you know, again, appreciate even the smallest comparison to that company because they're just, it's, it's amazing. It's a money printing machine. And so some of the things that we're trying to do have been informed by constellation and other holding companies um, but yeah there are some clear differences
1: so a skeptical owner might say okay so kevin's going to buy and hold my business he thinks this is a great asset and he's going to cream off some some dividends if they, you know if we have a profitable year and that's how he makes money i get it so a skeptical owner might say well like if it's good enough, Kevin, why wouldn't it be good enough for me? Like, why wouldn't I just hold the business forever? If Kevin's going to hold it, why, why should he have all the, all the profits? So like, it's how tough. would you respond to an owner who's sort of in that camp?
2: I would say that's a great question that you're asking yourself. And I like to say a great business to sell is also a great business to own. So part of what I love about your book and your, your, your program is teaching people, you know, built to sell doesn't require that you sell. But you're going to learn the things that make your business less reliant on you, healthier from a profitability standpoint, ready for somebody to buy. But if you decide you want to keep owning it, like that's awesome, keep doing that. I like to say that there are 100 reasons why people sell a business; only one of them is money. And as as an example, and I don't know if he told this story on your podcast, but you mentioned Arvid and Danielle. Yeah, they they sold me a business called Feedback Panda.
1: It's and a great episode, by the way. Everybody should go listen to it because it's a really good story. So they
2: are two of my favorite people. And so I highly endorse, yeah, go listen to that episode. And um, it was a while ago that I listened to it. So it might've been on that or a different podcast because Arvid is like Mr. Internet. and He's all over the place. Um, at one point, he was telling the story. He actually told me the story privately, but I know he's told it publicly. So that's why I feel it's okay to share. He and Danielle were running this business as a husband and wife team with very few other people. And it was successful, it was growing fast, but growth can create problems and challenges. And they had this asset on their hands that they knew was valuable and it was causing problems in their marriage. And not, you know, sort of just like when you have a business partner, that's hard enough. But when that business partner is also a life partner, it's just complicated. Like there's no other way around it. And so part of why they decided to sell, back to my point, 100 reasons to sell, only one of them is money. I think they were excited about like de-risking, getting some cash, but also they knew that their marriage would be healthier if they weren't running a business together. But it wasn't, it wasn't a sensible thing for either one or the other to leave the business. So they sold when it was super valuable, very successful. They're completely happy. Like we got to, um, you know, have a drink a few months later in Europe. And, um, I think it was a great decision for them. And I think it just illustrates the point of like, yeah, some people might have looked at that business and said, it's a great business. It's growing. It's profitable. Why wouldn't I keep it? Well, you might be in a different life circumstance than yeah. Danielle and Arvid at the time.
1: I'm laughing, Kevin, because my wife and I... <laughs> We we worked together for like an afternoon. Like I we lost a bookkeeper or something and like this is twenty years ago when we first got married. And like literally she lasted half a day. And she got over the other day. It's like never again. I'm never working for you. If you. it was the last place on earth. Yeah,
2: I've worked with my wife too, and it lasts a little bit longer than that. And I think if if it if it works, it's great. And if it doesn't it's probably not worth jeopardizing the life partnership with a business
1: partnership. 100%. 100%. Um, so what are some of the other reasons that you see entrepreneurs wanting to sell? You mentioned there are 99 or 100 reasons. Yeah. What are the most common you hear?
2: Um, I'm tired. I've been running this business for you know, 7, 10 years and I, I don't love it anymore. Um, I have another idea that I would like to focus on and I know I can't do both at the same time. Uh, sad, sad as it is, John, I've had, uh, deals come my way multiple times because somebody died or was about to die. Uh, really, I can't give uh, details on the business, uh, cause it wouldn't be fair, but, and we didn't buy it. It was just something that we thought hard about and wanted to. Was a, a, you know, a brother was running a business. His wife was not involved and the, the guy, the CEO died. And so the wife called his brother and said, can you please, me out I don't even know what this business is there was no succession plan you know something about business can you help me package this up to sell it so I got a call from the the surviving brother um, again we didn't end up doing the deal I think he got it sold to somebody else who was a better fit but I mean that's an example of like this isn't about money this is it's more about
1: life than it is money in in a lot of cases what what is it what would an entrepreneur say to you? that would have you licking your chops thinking, man, this is going to be great. This is going to be an amazing investment as a reason that they're selling. And my follow-up question is, what would they say as a reason they're selling that would make you run the other way?
2: <laughs> uh, well, let me let me take the more challenging one first, the run the other way. And there's a lot of things that, that are red flags, I'll say, when somebody's selling a business. Um we're running out of cash and I need to sell this business in the next month or XYZ bad things happen. Um, that's a red, I mean, that's a problem. Um, I, uh, me and my business partner can't get along. We have to sell this business. Not knowing anything more than a story it's like, okay, there, there, there's, there must be problems inside the business. Otherwise business partners might be happier. So like, I'm going to start asking some questions, like, you know, and like, <laughs> Uh, I want to sell my business. Uh, the books aren't really tuned up, but don't worry. It's making money. It's fine. Like that. Okay. Well, that you've, you've introduced a red flag. Um, so I mean, a lot of the, the inverse of what, a lot of what you teach in your book and on this podcast are, are red flags. So, and I'm not just saying that because you're here. I coach people on some of the same things of like, if you're wanting to sell, do these types of things. Um, now what gets me excited is somebody who's saying, um, you know, I have been preparing to sell my business for the last two years. I have the right, you know, documentation. I have been removing myself from the day-to-day operations of the business. So either my team or my number two is ready to take over as, you know, leader of the business, if you want them to do that. Um, I know the number that's going to make me happy and I can justify that number with research. I'm not just picking it out of thin air. Uh, those are the types of things that get me excited. Um, not like, oh, I'm going to get back to like, I don't get, it sounds weird, John. I would rather pay a healthy number for a business that is healthy, where a lot of people get excited when they hear, oh, this business is in trouble. It's depressed. It's declining in value. Investors want to get bailed out because everybody hates it. Other people might say, oh, I can get it on the cheap. I hear those things and I think I'm buying problems of somebody else's. That's that's not my ideal situation. I would rather buy something that somebody's in love with. And for one of those other ninety-nine reasons, they've just decided it's time that they hand it off or that they move on. Or that's time like I need help with this. So I'm gonna sell it. I'm gonna de-risk my personal balance sheet by taking the cash in exchange for my business. But I'll I'll keep running it. I like my job. I like what I do. Like those are the kind of the contrasts of what gets me excited and what are the red flags.
1: That's super helpful. You talk about the number and I'd be curious to know how you go about drawing out the number from an entrepreneur you're in front of. Because clearly, you you know, that's part of your criteria is they, they, they've clearly thought about the number that they need to be happy and you know it and you hear it and you go, yeah, I can, you know, it, they're not completely off in La La Land. So how do you get that number out of them?
2: Uh well it, it's not necessarily the goal to get that out of them that sounds a little bit like um unfair i guess. that's not true like there's nothing wrong with asking what's your number but i typically don't lead with that what i would like to do is learn about the business come up with what i think it's worth based on you know years of experience and diligence and understanding as much detail as i can and come up with like a number or range that i feel comfortable with and i'm happy to like introduce that number first it's a bit of a dance right some some founders will... I, we just talked to a guy two weeks ago. He's like, here's my business. Just gave me like top line profit or EBITDA. And I want this as my exit number. And he was pretty confident. And we were like, okay, well, we'll see if we can get there. Like, let's have a conversation. Um, if people know what they want, that's great. Because you know quickly, are we going to get there or are we not? Or I can get close, but help me bridge the gap, things like that. Uh, if somebody doesn't want to share their, their goal, that's fine, but it's not going to change my analysis of the business. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not going to just make, come up with a number because that's what you think it's worth. I have to believe in what I think it's worth. And it's super helpful if somebody has done some research, uh, and knows, okay, my business is of this size in this industry. You know, these are the typical multiples that my business will sell for, whether it's a, you know, multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of revenue you know, on the, you know, listeners of your show are probably more on the small business end. And so, you know, some multiple of profitability to a financial buyer like me, and I know you, you do a good job of differentiating strategic versus financial buyer. Um, you know, if you have some a range that's based in some grounding of fact and research, then that's super helpful to me to know, are we potentially going to find a deal and let's work towards the details or are we wasting each other's time? Uh, and I'm I'm happy for people to like, you know, approach me, and I never feel like my time is wasted unless um, somebody has completely unrealistic expectations, and they're not letting me know that. If that makes sense.
1: Absolutely, and this may be putting you on the spot, so forgive me for doing doing so. But if if you've got a business, let's imagine a a SaaS company, couple million dollars of ARR growing at 10% a year, churn less than 15% annually, like what kind of numbers would you apply against a business like that? Profitable, let's say it's making 10% even to margins.
2: Yeah, so um, I would say generally the range for SaaS, you're gonna, at this that, that size or maybe a little bit bigger, you're gonna see anywhere from like four times profits to like the very high end, like eight or nine. And, and the business you described in hypotheticals is, is not at the very high end of that range. I would say there are a couple of groups that do a very good job of publishing. So, and I said, I'll give a plug to one of the best in terms of transparency. It's uh, Micro Acquire was the brand they launched with. They're now called Acquire.com. Andrew
1: Stecki, um, we've had him on the show uh, actually. <laughs> I, I, as <laughs> yeah. I was
2: saying this, I'm like, I know John's probably talked to Andrew. So he <laughs> yeah, ju- yeah. he does this regularly uh and i invested in microquire early so just as a you know uh full transparency i'm a fan of andrews and the business but i'm plugging it because they're so transparent and they say here's all of our data for e-commerce for saas for tech enabled services and here are the multiples that we are seeing um and so any one of your listeners or readers could go and just like Find Andrew Gazdecki on Twitter and it's, it's not hard it'll, on their website, you know, acquire.com. It'll, it'll say, here's the latest, you know, by M and A, research that we've done. And so that at least gets people starting to think about like, okay, I'm in this category and he segments it by size and lots of, you know, different, different data points. So it's super helpful just to see like, okay, what, where, where does this fall? And some have really, really big ranges. So like then so they can ask some more questions like, okay, Why might one business sell for two times profits and one might sell for 10? Uh, And where do I fit on that spectrum? So
1: That's super helpful. We'll put Andrew's website in the the show notes about the sell as well. Talk to me a little bit about how you get deal flow. So how do you find businesses to buy?
2: um, Well, having done this for going on eight years and bought businesses from... 45 different entrepreneurs. I've got a bit of a, you know, reputation in my little segment of the world. Um, you know, there are people like Arvid who has his own podcast who talks about his experience. Another guest of yours that I know you've talked to is Tyler Tringus. Oh, he sure. sold me a yeah. business and he's got um a, you know, a following of his own and people seek him out. He blogged all about the experience and that was so um there's those things like just a network and relationships is the Frankly, the best way to find deal flow. Cause if there's somebody who's a friend or somebody says, Hey, I talked to, you know, Laura Roter, she, she suggested that I call you <laughs> that going back to your prior question, like I'm interested. If one of my friends told you to call me, like you're, you're right to the top of the inbox and like, let's have a conversation. Um, we also reach out proactively to people that, you know, if I find a business that I like, I won't say the name, but I'm using a piece of software now that I hadn't heard of six months ago that I love using as a customer. And so I just emailed the founder last week and I said, look, I love your your business. I'm a happy customer, just FYI, like high five for Minnesota. <laughs> and by the way, if you're ever interested in selling, like please call me because we love buying businesses like yours. Um, and every once in a while that works. Actually, that's how I got introduced to Danielle um, from Feedback Panda, Arvid's partner. Um, She posted something on uh, you know, I think it was a website called Indie Hackers, which you've talked to them too before you say it. Um just saying, hey, we reached this MR milestone. Here's how we did it, here's what's working, here's what's not. Hopefully other people can learn from this experience. I read it and I like started learning about her business and I just emailed her. I was like, hey, congratulations. Like this is awesome what you've built. I love how you're highlighting your customers in your you know case studies. And, you know, FYI, we, we like businesses like yours. And then, you know, fast forward several months and we, it was just fortuitous timing. Probably not an accident that Danielle posted that because they were probably thinking about selling. But so deals come our way because of, you know, me, my team, our reputation, having treated founders really fairly for a long, long time. And then we proactively reach out to folks and we also follow you know, the, the, the best you know, brokers and intermediaries in this space. And there are, you know, a few dozen that focus on the niche of software in the size range that we're super interested in. And I love building relationships with those people so that when I have a, when they have a deal that fits what we are interested in, we're one of their first calls or emails.
1: Tell me a little bit more about that experience. In particular, I'm interested in when an entrepreneur comes to you shopping the business. So they, they've made the proactive decision to sell. They may or may not have engaged an M&A professional, but they are attempting to get the best price by looking or by contacting multiple acquirers. What's your reaction when you learn they're, quote, shopping the business?
2: I think, great. Like Let's talk. I'm interested. You know, I, I think it is rare that a business owner would get one email inbound or make one call and a, and a deal gets done. Like that happens. But, you know, if for nothing else, like t- test the market, you know, w- whether with an inter- intermediary or not, if somebody calls me and says, Hey, I'm thinking about selling my business. I just assume, okay, you've built a, a good business. You're a smart person. If I'm interested in your business, you're successful. You're probably smart enough to call a few other people that, you know, also might be interested in your business. So, you know, the notion of like, proprietary deal flow, you know, your listeners might have heard were like, oh, we've got this secret sauce where well, only we know about this deal. Okay. If you're in the software space and somebody's selling to you and you don't think Constellation Software has already called them 50 times, you're kidding yourself <laughs> because that's how big they are and that's how massive they are. They call every single software company in the world every once in a while. Um so I, I just assume people are talking to more than just me. And if somebody's selling to me because I'm their only option, like that feels kind of weird. So, but you know, that that's fine. I'm, I'm just There's interested things- to talk to people with good businesses and I don't really, um, you know, it doesn't matter to me if they're coming through an intermediary or by themselves sort of shopping it. Like that's fine.
1: But how do you win? Because, you know, if if I were a different kind of private equity group, like if I was, a micro private equity group just set up to flip SaaS companies, as an example. I've got a lot more levers to pull to make money, so I I can I can buy uh, low because I know I'm going to sell. I'm going to get some multiple expansion. I'm going to sell on the back end. and I'm going to make my money on the back end. So I can I've, I've got a money making sort of opportunity there. I've also got efficiencies. Like I'm going to grind down all the expenses out of the company, and I'm going to get a whole bunch of efficiencies to make it more profitable so i'm going to get a i'm going to get a spike there maybe i'm using a lot of debt so i'm not putting a little much equity into the into the equation so like if i wanted to be like a super hardcore shark of a private equity like buyer i could probably outbid you if i'm understanding correctly cuz your only way to make money is to to make money off the profits of the company so in order to make that make sense. You've got to buy the business for less and hold for a long time. So, how do you win when you're competing against guys who are, you know, they're pulling on lots of different levers to make money? Does that make sense?
2: It makes sense, but let me um clarify a couple of things. We have all those levers too. We can buy with debt, we can get multiple expansion, we can you know, lay off a bunch of people and get higher margins. Like, it's not like those tools are exclusive to, you know, private equity sharks. Um, The, the difference is we don't have to sell to be uh, really happy with our performance and for our investor groups to be really happy with our performance. Everybody's just aligned around long term hold. Compounding is a great way to build a really healthy portfolio of businesses. Your earlier question, like if somebody's got a great business and, you know, I want to buy it, well, why wouldn't they just keep it? Like that's the conversation in my head all the time. Like if I can buy a great business, build it to be even better, and I don't have to sell it, why not just keep it? Right. So, like, we can sell businesses if we want the influx of cash, but we just don't have to. And that's the difference between us and, you know, private equity. Um, and like the shark comment is probably most, so like why would somebody sell to us? And like if I if I'm, you know, so let's say I'm bidding 15 million dollars on a business and somebody can get 20. Well, if somebody's offering 20, they they either see something that I didn't see or maybe they've got a strategic angle. Maybe one of us is not as good at math as the other one. We just see the business differently. And so John, if you're the founder and you you know, my bid is 15 and I'm confident at that. Somebody else is going to offer you 20 and that $5 million delta, I guess meaningful money, right? So like you say, I'm going to go with the 20. Cool. I wish you luck. Sorry, it didn't work out for me, but I want you to be happy and successful. You know, like, and did the the $20 million offer come because of debt or because their plan is to strip out profits or because their plan is multiple expansion? Like we could have done all those things in our model to come up with 15. What I'm telling you is like, I'm not just going to bid 21 because somebody else bid 20 because there is, you know, a lot of, you know, either dumb or inexperienced money out there, or people might just have like a a different, you know, formula that they're coming up with to to bid more than me. Sometimes I'll bid more than other people. I know for a fact, and I can't share share specific names here because that would be unfair to the founders who sold. We've... Acquired businesses often where I wasn't the high bidder. And it's because there's something about, like, you know, I, I treat founders fairly. I have never retraded a deal once I give somebody a letter of intent.
1: Define retrading for Yeah, I'm trading. glad you
2: asked. So, retrade is sort of like so common in the private equity world that it's accepted as the norm. I think it's kind of a crappy approach. So, a retrade would be. I'm going to give you a letter of intent for $20 million to lock you up as, with exclusivity. So you can't talk to any other sellers for a period of time, like probably minimum two months. It might be as long as I had a friend who got locked into a year of exclusivity with a single buyer. And a retrade happens when over the course of that diligence period, I'm learning more about your company. All of a sudden that $20 million offer, and it usually happens to come right before we're supposed to close. Now I'm going to offer you $16 million. And you're so like mentally and emotionally committed to the sale that you, that they're hoping that you're willing to just let that four million slide because you don't want to start the whole process over again. I think that's a pretty poor way to treat a founder and a business owner. And I just don't do it. Like I'm rather, I would rather give you the number that I'm going to stick to than, you know, lie to you with a big number, knowing that at the end of the day, I'm going to come down to a smaller number.
1: Um, One of the other things that private equity groups have become notorious for is... I shouldn't say notorious. I think it's just their business model. Mm-hmm. They they buy 60% of the business. and So they'll throw out a big valuation. Let's just use your 15 and 20 example. Yeah. Uh, so they'll say, hey, we think your business is great. We want to offer you 20. Now the deal structure and you get know, underneath the sheets is, is 12 in cash you've got to take eight of the 20 and roll it into equity into a new entity. And that equity, you're now a minority shareholder in their new entity that they're going to build other businesses around and potentially create some efficiencies. with the idea of selling that new entity and you can make off like a bandit with your second tranche of equity, Mm -hmm. so-called second bite of the apple, which is terribly overused expression. (laughs) The challenge of course, with that is that as a minority shareholder in the new entity, you're just that, a minority shareholder. At the whim of the private equity group, you have no rights to typically put your shares onto the, the private equity group. And so you're just left. In one instance, we did an interview with a guy named Derek Moran. I, I'll link up to it in the show notes. The guy sold for similar numbers, 20 and 12, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd have to go back and listen to it. But the eight that he rolled went to zero because the guy, they, the the person they brought in to run the company, had no idea how to run his business, and it all went poof to zero. Um, so that's the knock against. That's one of the challenges I think with selling a private equity group. And and I I'd just be curious to know if you have sort of comments on, on Have you seen that? It, it, you know, what should entrepreneurs be aware of when it comes to that kind of model.
2: yeah no, I think you teed it upgrade. I think that happens all the time. Just like retrading happens all the time. Like rolling equity, that's part of the playbook. And I would say that's neither good nor bad. Like to me, this isn't a black and white, like one thing is the right thing to do and the other is the wrong thing to do. It's just you got to know what you're signing up for. Um, it's a typical risk and reward trade-off. And people need to know, like, am I do I believe that this company is this New owner is the white, right one to run my company and hopefully get me more money in the future. Or would I rather just have the full 20 million now from somebody else? Or there, there might be an alternative. So your, your hypothetical example, let's say it was 20 in total value, 12 in cash. If somebody comes and offers you 16 million, all cash. Now you got a decision to make. And neither one of those deals is like better or worse. It's just a trade-off. Like, do I want all the cash now? Or do I believe that these people are gonna make it bigger? And um, so I I think just being informed about how all this stuff works. And And
1: from what I'm understanding is you would do the latter. You would go in with an all cash offer. Yeah. And it may be lower. in. at first glance, but it, the, the terms may be more favorable. Or it might be the same.
2: Like, you know, to, right. again, the, to me, the value of the business is the value. And we prefer to be an all cash buyer. Um, and it, you know, that same hypothetical business, we might be also offering 20 million. And then it like, probably is an easy decision.
1: What's the structure of Big Band from the standpoint? I'm, I'm curious to know the legal structure. So some of what I've understand to be the way some, VC groups work is is there's kind of GPs or general partners who run the fund and get a percentage of the fund's sort of assets to administer the fund, and then there are investors who are called limited partners. So their limited downside is the whatever they put into the deal, LPs. So GPs and LPs. What's your structure and how might it be different than a than a VC firm, for example?
2: Yeah, no, that's I'm glad you asked. And um, private equity is very similar, like. General partners, limited partners, the general partner in both a venture capital and a private equity context make money off of fees per year and then carry, which is typically 20%. You know, once a deal is sold, 20% goes to the firm after paying off investors. Um, for a lot of the reasons that, so I, you know, when creating big band, I had the opportunity to sort of like get a blank piece of paper. And, you know, think about all of my experiences in buying businesses, a little bit of business experience, selling businesses, you know, having investors, having business partners say, okay, what, what do I want this to look like? And I literally was able to start with a clean slate. And, you know, no defined holding period was at the top of my list. Cause as, a, as an example, um, somebody who a private equity group that raised money in say 2013. Is coming to the end of their, their time where they're obligated to get their investors, their money back because funds usually go seven to 10 years. As we're recording in the spring of 2023, it's not a great time to be selling businesses because the market's down. Debt is super high. Uh, just you're not getting multiples that you would have gotten in 2021 or 2022. But those people have to sell most of their portfolio. And there's ways around that. But at the end of the day, like you promised people you would take their money, hold it for 10 years and then give them back all their money. So you're selling in a down market. Congratulations. That's one of a number of reasons why I, d- I didn't like that idea. So long hold period. Um, I wanted investors who were, uh, believed in that strategy. Buy and hold is a business strategy. It is not a religion. I'm going to trademark that someday. Um, and the, the the fee structure that you described creates an incentive to just raise more and more funds. And here's one of the dirty little secrets about venture capital and private equity. They end up making there, there's a reason they keep raising bigger and bigger funds. And it's because you get bigger and bigger fees to pay the bigger and bigger teams. And again, that's not like good nor bad, it just is what it is. And when I went to my team and my investors, I said, here's what I want to do. I want to build a big holding company that, you know, 27 years from now looks something like Constellation, but with the differences that I already described. Like we want to create our own reputation and brand about treating founders well, paying fair prices. You know, maybe we'll sell something if it's a great deal, but like we just make smart business decisions based on the needs of that business, not on some fun timing. And I said that the 2 and 20 model does not incentivize the right behavior. It incentivizes like raise more and more funds that are bigger and bigger and sell every business you can after a short holding period. I'm like, for a number of reasons, that's not what I want to do. So here's the salary that I think is fair to me and a small team of starting people. Here's the equity that I think is fair to me and that team of people. And that here's the equity left over for investors and here's the fund that we want to raise. And part of our model, John, is you're like, how do you make money? Well, we make money from the profits of the portfolio, but it's not getting distributed. Those profits go back up to the holding company to facilitate more acquisitions. Um, So structure, it is is a holding company and there are different flavors of that, but it is not a fund. Um, My team has a fair amount of equity with the opportunity to earn even more if we perform really well our investors have invested money with no expectation of when they're going to see that money back. And we all just believe in the model.
1: I'm going to ask you some questions that might get uncomfortable. So if they do, you just away. tell me where to go. But, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, the reason I'm asking is I, I would love for people to understand, really get inside your head as they think about approaching people like you, a business, you know, an acquirer of, of a business uh, that's listening to the show. What proportion of your net worth would you have invested in big band? Like, I know you've got a home that you own and you probably got some stocks in the stock market, but like what proportion of your net worth would be in big band?
2: Uh, uh, would be easiest, as much as possible right now. And it's a little bit of a, let me, let me, the only answer I can give is what's right for Kevin. I believe in myself, I believe in my team, have done this for a long time. Big band is a new business, but it's not a new concept to me. And so I have an unfair information advantage to in order to invest probably more than any reasonable financial advisor would recommend to advise in a private enterprise like this. I have friends who have similar models, like a good friend who's building an e-commerce holding company or somebody that's building a brick and mortar holding company. I wouldn't invest the same percentage of my net worth into their businesses even though they're friends, even though the models the same because I don't have the same information advantage and I don't have the same ability to influence the outcome if that makes sense. 100%. So, I don't know if you're asking for we're, we're not seeking investors, like we've got all the money we need for right now. Um even friends and family no, would have to like talk me into percent. investing. It's like, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, the reason I'm asking is I want to get a sense of how much skin you have in the game. So, for mm-hmm. example, I think some of these professional private equity groups, like kind of the brand name private equity groups that people are aware of. I mean, the people who work in those companies are salaried professionals. They are incentivized to make good investments, and they have variable compensation plans that 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 are commensurate with, with their role. Yet, my sense is that they are salaried people, like it's like working at Goldman Sachs or working at J.P. Morgan or working at you know Bank of America. You you're, you don't you don't kind of think about it on the weekend. Like you go home, yeah. you, you leave, and your job is done. And you get up the next morning, and you go back to work. My sense is that someone like you who's starting a fund may have a bit more skin in the game, yeah. and that you're not necessarily going home at night and flipping on the football game and, and like kind of checking out. Like <laughs> you're a little more dialed in because, yeah. you're bit, am I getting that wrong? Maybe No, it's,
2: no you're it's right. I, your l- l- no, it's it's a like p- probably a uh, overweighted proportion of my net worth. More I'm, than half. I'm recording from my house. Like I own a house in Minnesota and this. Now I've got, got some it. like long-term retirement, but like you, you make a very good point that I, um, I love connecting. Let me say it this way. I love connecting with founders of businesses or owners of businesses because I know how that feels. I am an owner of big band. I have started other businesses in the past, some successful, some less successful. Um, I fall asleep every night thinking about my business and I wake up every morning thinking about my business and I am very thoughtful and protective of like life work balance. I have a wife and four kids and it's not like I'm a workaholic. But when you're a business owner, people I think will hear this and understand like you can't shut it off. And I think your point, I have been the salary guy too. And it was easier to shut that. Like if the business failed, I didn't fail personally and financially. Um, So yes, there was a different level of commitment. And there are some like private equity and venture capital people who have invested in their own funds. So it's not like exclusive thought, me or holding companies. But I think, I assume you're asking, because like that, that might matter to some people selling a business. Like, am I selling to somebody who is going to take my business, my baby to use, you know, another potentially overused term and care about it as much as I do, or I did. And I I should in the future, another, um, thing that I like to share with business owners is like, you're tied to your business long after you sell it, you know, for for better and for worse. Like it is your legacy. It's something you're going to tell people about, like, even if you're not actively running it, you say, Oh, I built this business and I sold it. You're going to say that forever. And if you sell it, sell it to somebody who doesn't do right by your legacy, that's going to not feel good um, even if maybe you got a few extra bucks in the transaction. So I think you, I was so excited to come on this show because you ask all the right questions and, and have all these insights. But um, yeah, I've got plenty of skin in the game. And if big band fails, I don't have this house anymore.
1: That goes to the question I was going to ask next, which is who collateralizes the debt? So I know buying businesses... You have to use debt to make it work. So how much debt would you typically use on a deal to, to execute it?
2: Um, so right now zero like we're buying in all cash that is committed cash from investors. Uh, the plan is to you know build a healthy portfolio that is profitable and diversified and healthy. Um, and then we might layer some debt on the holding company itself just to you know give more flexibility, better returns. But um when we make offers, it's not with like X percent of equity and X percent of debt. Because that, you know, re- I would rather reduce our risk in the near term, confidently tell a founder, this is my number. You don't have to rely on me raising money from anybody else or convincing a bank to loan me the money. I have this money in an account that I could give you next week if that's as fast as we choose to close.
1: Got it. And... If you were to lever up the hold co and put some debt against on top of the holding company, would you be required to sign a personal guarantee for that debt?
2: Um, well, I don't want to speak for hypothetical banks that we're talking to, but like I, I probably would not. You know, we've got plenty of cash. We would have, you know, healthy companies. Uh I have signed personal guarantees in the past, but um that is not built into our model. <laughs>
1: I heard about a story. To this day I I shake my head and go, that can't be possible. But let me let me walk you through the, the economics mm-hmm. and, and tell me if you think this is as insane as I think it is. So it was one of these PE deals where the private equity group was was going in and saying, hey, we're we're flashing a big valuation, whatever it is. Let's just use 20 million for the sake of our conversation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that, but it doesn't really matter. We're gonna give you 12 up front, and we're gonna and we're gonna let you're gonna ask you to roll eight. Now, to make this make sense and really make that $8 million that you're leaving into the business really you know jack up the return, we're going to take on some debt and buy some other businesses. Now, they wanted the owner to personally guarantee the debt mm. that the private equity group was taking on in order to grow the company. Can you... Can like, like I've equated it to the idea of like selling your home and, and, and then like, <laughs> I can't even actually equate it to selling no. your home. It makes no sense. Have you ever heard of a deal structure like that?
2: No. Um, did the person do the deal or did they run away? I think it oh, was
1: a guy. Yeah. Again, I don't have firsthand knowledge of it. So I've heard about it through somebody, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it, to this day it blows my mind but it speaks to the importance of understanding if you are going to sell to a private equity group what is the debt load that they are going to use because whether or not you have to personally guarantee the debt which would be unusual mm-hmm. again i haven't heard of it since your company will certainly have to pay off the debt which, puts, entity, which puts risk it puts on the next pressure.
2: you know the next yeah. exit or the next you know distribution and so on and so forth so no i i've never heard of that i think that is um, really terrible if that actually happened. It was a true story. Not that I doubt you sharing it, but obviously it's secondhand knowledge. It's um, secondhand. Yeah. So yeah. no, that that's not the way the world can and should work. Um, and I think the the important lesson is like ask the right questions. And, a, and a, somebody selling a business has every right to know, are you buying this with cash? Are you buying it with debt? What is the plan? How, how does your debt work? Where... If you are a fund, which we are not, but if you're a fund, a really good question for people to ask is like, where are you in your fund life cycle? So are you in year one of a 10-year fund? Or are you in year six of a 10-year fund? Because that informs how would that, how would that inform? What what would what would so, you interpret to mean to take away from that? So if if somebody's selling for all cash, it doesn't really matter. It matters if like if I'm selling to somebody who I hope owns my business for a long, long time, but they then that's part of their their their, um, argument for why they're a good buyer, but my fund runs out. Same conversation. Remember, I said, if somebody started a fund in 2020 or 2013, they're at the point where they have to sell everything. Well, if, if you're six years into a 10 year fund, like you can only hold this business for two or three years before you have to market and sell it. So if as a, as a seller, I care who owns my business and I don't want to see somebody else own it in four years. Now I've got some information that I can weigh. Like, does this matter to me? If I'm being asked to roll equity in your, you know, previous examples, okay. Well, how long do you intend to hold this business and then sell it to somebody else so I can get that, you know, second check? Um, if there's debt involved, you need to ask a lot of really hard pointed questions about like what? Well, just how much, how much debt, you know, 20 million. If it's, you know, you're putting 12 in cash and asking me to roll eight, but your 12 is actually 3% cash and 9% debt. All of a sudden, this business that I was running that we've agreed is worth $20 million has 9% debt loaded onto it. That means you have to... What do you, do you
1: mean by save- 9% debt? I'm, I'm sorry, debt not,
2: not 9%, 9 million. So again, like let's say, John, your okay. business is worth... Tw- we say the valuation is 20000000 million. You're going to take 12 in cash, but you're rolling 8. But the the cash I've given you is actually 3% of real cash for me and, and... 3 million so I keep in real cash. That. 3 million yep. in real cash. Thank you. Nine million in debt from some bank.
1: Why do I care? If I'm the seller, I'm getting my 12 million. Like, why do I care that you're getting 9 million of it from a bank? Because 8 million in your value is now
2: tied into this business that has that owes you 8 million, but it owes the bank nine million first. So the profits from the company are going to service that 9 million in debt, and you got to pay that down in, and then sell it. Or when you sell it, you got to pay off the 9 million first. So if you believe in the model, like to me, to me, that's just a, a material difference in whether somebody or if it's and actually it's you get, this is where it gets tricky and hard. And where like a really good advisor in a complex situation like that is very good because um, somebody might say, well, no, I'm giving you 12 million in cash. It's not financed at all. You know, your 8 million is the first debt that we owe when we sell the business but they could go six months or a year later and layer debt onto the business. You can't stop them because you're a minority owner, but all of a sudden you're behind a bank when the, you know, selling happens. So for a lot of those reasons, like the traditional sell to private equity, roll equity, it almost always shows a big number, but there are complications that people need to know what they're signing up for and know if they have any ability to block those, you know, pitfalls down the road, or if they just have to, sit and take it and hope it works out.
1: Yeah, the other one that, that, that I think I hear a lot about is that that private equity buyers sort of scrape the soul out of a company. I actually let, read an article over the weekend. Uh, it was a company based in Toronto called Gluskin Chef run by a guy named Ira Gluskin, founded by a guy. They were a wealth management company. They did uh, investment management, retail investment management, and, and some institutional stuff. In any event, Ira Gluskin, I wrote it down because I wanted to make sure I got the quote right. Um said he sold his company to private equity Onyx, which is a large private equity group. And he said, quote, they deserve to go bankrupt. This oh, was wow. like five years after he sold his company. And he went on to talk about them basically just completely, you know, gutting the soul of the company. And that's from a founder who sold, was totally out, but but was um you know, was lamenting his decision to sell uh, to a private equity group. And so I think these deals can work out tremendously well. And, and there are circumstances where a founder feels like the buyer didn't honor the soul of the company. Yeah. I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. What, what you would coach owners to think about as it relates to this risk of losing the soul of your company
2: Uh, i have a lot of thoughts on that um unfortunately when you sell a business and you're either completely bought out or in a minority position you're no longer the decision maker you have to accept that it might be run differently then you would run it. And that could include everything as small as like changing the logo to scraping out the soul of the company. But like when you sell, you need to accept that somebody else is making the decisions and you may not agree with all of those decisions. Um and if you can't live with somebody else making decisions on your company and running it differently than you, you it might not be the right time for you to sell. So that is an important thing to think about um, when approaching you know, thinking about selling a business. I would say, like, I don't know anything about this, you know, IRA person yeah, yeah. or Onyx. Um, I, 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 th- I worry that um, they're really good, kind, honest, smart people that work in private equity firms. So I don't want to paint the whole industry with a negative brush. Um, I do think it's important. These conversations are important for, you know, owners to listen to and to ask the right questions or to think about so like selling to private equity is not necessarily bad again I have friends that run private equity firms but like upset, yeah. there are different flavors just like with anything else like I run a software holding company there are different flavors of ours there I believe we do things the right way and treat people really well and honor the you know legacy of their company and people are going to be proud to have sold to my business um I think there are other people that run software holding companies that Take the opposite approach and one specifically that I know and I won't name their model. And I think they tell founders this. So it's not a surprise. Fire everybody. All the dev and customer support goes to, you know, offshore people that cost, you know, 20% less. They tell their customers, we're no longer, you know, uh, putting out new features. We're going to raise prices 20%. I dare you to leave. And that's just their model. So like, On paper, we look sort of similar, like software holding company, buy and hold, but like very different owner experience when selling to me versus that other company. And so it's not as simple as like sell to this category of people. And we briefly touched on like strategic acquirers, which I know you've had some in your seller or buyer series, like that's a whole category. You talk about that a lot and like that for sellers aiming at that makes perfect sense. There are good experiences and there are bad experiences. There are good and bad experiences telling selling to somebody with a holding company model. There are good and bad experiences selling to private equity. Uh, there are good and bad experiences with, I don't wanna sell at all, I'm just gonna keep holding my company. Um, and so I think the best thing people can do is know what questions to ask, get um, talk to people who've done it before, uh, get the right advice, whether you actually hire an intermediary or you talk to other people. I'm a big fan of, um, you know, before we started recording, I think you mentioned entrepreneurs organization. Uh, there's that. There's YPO. There's Vistage. You probably could find some like regional based things where you like have your peer groups of business owners. Like that's an amazing place to just get connected with other people in a similar situation, whether they've sold a business or they haven't and just like understand these stories. Um, so that you're not surprised with, the, you know, and you actually know the questions to ask about like rolling equity or debt or like, you know, how how's, how does a transition period work when I, I've sold but you're still asking me to help transition, like I mentioned before. Um, and and you know, corollary to that is like start that process early. I I, I coach people all the time, like start thinking about these things, even if you don't intend to sell for another three years or five years. Because one, things can change. Life circumstances can change. And all of a sudden, you might have to sell or you might want to sell earlier than you thought. So it's never too early to start educating yourself on these things as a business owner. And you get this education built up over time so that what might be foreign concepts that we're talking about right now two years, three years down the road, you're very conversant in these things. And you know what questions to ask and you, you know, approach it with more of a confident, you're not at so much of an information disadvantage when you're going to sell.
1: I was, uh, I was talking to one entrepreneur who, who, who classified a sellable company or a built sell company as he, as he characterized it as a, the perfect insurance policy. So to your point, you shared a story earlier, the death of one of the partners. I mean, no one expects to die. No one likes to buy Think about life insurance. But ultimately, having a company that, that is sellable gives you a, a, an insurance policy so that if something life changes, some life event happens to you for whatever, you know, good or bad, uh, you've got something, an asset you can sell. And you're absolutely right. we I don't want to leave... Uh, our listeners with the impression that selling you a private equity group is bad. I think we've had lots of amazing success stories. I, I think of one last week, we interviewed the founder of Tula, who skincare, you know, nine figure business, huge, huge exit. He sold part of his business to a private equity group and they were instrumental in getting him to a massive exit. So probably would never have happened had it not been for them. So mm-hmm. for sure, we should not. Uh, you're absolutely right to point out. We should not make this a, uh, uh, you know, pissing on the the private equity community. That's not the intent of the the episode. But I brought of, that and, up so people don't get mad at me. Not because yeah, I think are no, doing the wrong thing. I think thing. I think you have to know what's. I mean, but those know,
2: stories, stories are getting, out there. Oh, like the you know, like the oh, we, un- we unfortunately, the share. sad stories are are more common than the, or maybe just more talked about than the super I successful think we're
1: ones talked about. I think you know, look. I think the, I wanted to focus on this word "soul," because it, it, to me, that is the essence. That sure, there are situations where, uh, like Brian Moran, where the where the private equity company came in and the business failed after they owned it. Like I, bad business strategy, bring in the wrong people. I get it. That's that stuff happens. That stuff happens, right? But but the word "soul" is a very emotive word, which I think goes to illustrate the the, the the pangs in one's gut when a decision is made that is counter to somebody's value system, the soul of the company. I, I We did one interview with, uh, this goes back to 2018 or so. I'll, again, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, her name is Sherry Deutschman, and she built a company uh, uh, based on a profit sharing plan for her employees. She had a, a very uh, low, a lot of low paid employees for whom the profit sharing plan, the monthly profit sharing plan, w- became a significant part of their compensation. Mm-hmm. In the early days, She believed like in her gut, going back to Seoul, to 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 really give a little bit of the profits to these people that made no money, like you know, eight dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour working in a factory setting. But so in the early days these checks were, you know, like twelve dollars a month and like sixteen dollars. But over time, as the business grew and successful, these sort of blue collar workers and the, you know, these, these frontline people were getting checks of like $180 or $240 a month. And it became like a meaningful part of their like amount of money they, they needed to live on. And she sold a private equity group and, and, of course, they did the spreadsheet and they said, oh, well, if we strip out the variable compensation, this incentive program you've got for, you know, we save 12% and our return on investment goes, you know, up to 16 and our investors will love us. And, so get rid of the, uh, the variable compensation. And Sherry's like, no, no, you, that's, that's, no, no, you can't get rid of that. That's like Everybody part puts. of the DNA of the company. Yeah. And, and they're like, no, no, but if you can look at the spreadsheet here, if we just take out <laughs> that 12% and you our ROI goes for 68 per hour, <laughs> whatever. And she's like, no, no, that's the soul. Anyways, they, they stripped it out. She left. It was, it was a terrible experience for her. And she regrets the decision to this day. So there are those stories. But to me, I think it goes down to like for Sherry, that was part of this, her soul. Like that was not. A business decision. It was like, a, it was just like, it was a personal value that she felt she needed to give.
2: what sounded that. like a core value of the company itself. Core like, value. There were probably yeah. people that came to work at that company specifically because of this thing, or certainly people that had grown up with the company that got like, that was part of their compensation. And so to think yeah. that you just strip that out and like, everything's fine, um, you know, might've been a little delusional again, not knowing all the details, but, um, you know that that's, yeah, messing with people's compensation is not a trivial matter, and it doesn't make it less trivial because it's a uh, somebody making less per hour. It might even be more important that they have it, that money. It may be money. more important. Yeah,
1: but but it but it goes to your point earlier, which is if you sell, you have to be comfortable with the fact that you've sold, and decisions, even ones that might affect the soul of the company are now not in your control. Mm-hmm. And so I think founders need to understand, you know, if there is a part of the soul of their company they don't want changed, having a really candid conversation with the new buyer up front to find out what their intention is, how they feel about it, if they deeply understand the soul. And even still, you might sell and they might change it. So you kind of have to roll the dice. You have to uh,
2: sell to somebody that no. you trust that is going to be a good yep. steward of your company you still have to be accepting that they might do things differently than you but i think that's a really important thing is like just you know um knowing who's going to be the custodian of your business and believing that they're going to you know do the right thing more than they do the wrong thing and yeah you got to be willing to Take that chance. i reminded of a different Sherry who was a friend of mine, Sherry Walling. Tell me if you've interviewed her. Oh, sure. Her. Rob Walling's wife. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Sherry is a um, clinical psychologist or psychiatrist. They yep. can never remember the d- difference. But um, she's written about, and I got to see her do a talk, uh, I think at one of Rob's conferences, MicroConf, about... Um, yeah, we should
1: be clear. Rob Walling yeah. is the founder of DRIP. He also uh, runs an uh, investment uh, program called Tiny Seed. Yep. Uh, some people may know his podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, which is a tremendous podcast. I recommend everybody take a listen to that. And his wife is Sherry Walling, who works uh, with entrepreneurs on transition issues, as I understand it. You know better than I. Yeah, well,
2: Sherry's sure, got a you know amazing career in her own right, and they're sort of a power couple. But I, I, I bring her up because she did an amazing talk about... Um, Founder psychology, and I'm going to butcher it, but I'll help. I'll get you the links so we put in the show notes and get the real yeah. the he, the the meat of either the study or Sherry's talk. Sherry's talk is probably more consumable, but what I remember from it was they you know wired up you know people's brains so they could see the brain activity, and they're showing founders like let's say it's me. You're showing the founder a picture of their kids, picture of their kids, picture of the kids, and then the company logo, kids, 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 and company and there were good good and bad things. So we're trying to measure what triggers positive brain response and what triggers negative brain response. And the interest super interesting takeaway from this, and sounds as, as I'm listening to this as a father, I'm like, no way, but I'm also, I believe in science. So the big takeaway was the company images and logos triggered very similar response as the child, you know, images and and those sorts of things. And so, you know, People say like selling my business is like giving up my baby. Like that's not that's not just an expression. And so, you know, a couple of you know things to take away from that. One, like you hard to argue with science, but I, I do believe like I put my kids in an entirely different category than my business. And you've heard me talk about how much I love my business. I I, I try to be conscious and healthy about that. And um when thinking about selling, like that's the it, it, there's a, there's a PCU that's gone. You know, there's a piece of your identity that changes indefinitely, like for, forever. And, um, being ready, having a built to sell business so that it's that insurance policy and it, it, you can be ready in a hurry, even if you don't think you want to sell it in the future. Uh, and knowing like if, if that part of my identity is gone or different, like then, then what? Who am I? Which is a real question. Like I know other founders who've sold businesses, huge outcomes, like super successful. Actually, there's some very public ones that are very tragic, where now that I'm not the owner and the founder of this company, I don't know who I am. I'm a little bit lost. I don't know what my next thing is. So I'll, I'll, I bring that up because it's super interesting. Sherry's a friend and it sort of related to this like soul of the company and what are my core values and the company's core values. But it's also just a like to illustrate, again, my point, like selling a business is, you know, only one reason is money. And this is very complicated. And I think the best thing that owners can do is prepare, think about it, read, listen to experts, connect with other, you know, owners, both post exit, pre exit, early stage, and just like be, you know, maybe a little vulnerable and open and honest with one another and just say like, you know, I think I want to sell, but maybe I'm a little scared because I don't know what I'm going to do. And I've been working my butt off for X number of years. And if I have all this free time, like, then what? And, you know, like, those are those are some of the real conversations that people should have with loved ones and trusted, you know, friends, and or if nothing else, in your own head, because the, the, that stuff becomes, you know, really important and really complicated when you go to sell.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm a big believer in having some pull factor, something that you want to go do next, that is pulling you towards. Uh, a new business or a new venture, a new new something, because uh, you're right. It it can leave people feeling empty if they if they're not if they haven't really thought about their next chapter in clear detail. I can chat with you, Kevin. All day long. So we we'll have again sometime. It was great um, having, you know, again, I've heard your name from Laura, who, former guest, Arvid and Danielle. You mentioned Tyler, I'd forgotten about, but these
2: are all people that who's- Anybody so I bring awesome. up, you've interviewed that. So like I <laughs> so, say, you know cool. all my friends.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's great. And uh, it's cool that, um, that our guests are selling to you and people like you. So that's fantastic. Um, just, Tell people where the best place to reach you is online. What's the best way to reach out? Yeah.
2: Bigbandsoftware.com. If you want to say hi, um, if you're listening to this, we're, we're looking for great businesses and great team members to join. Uh, we've got a newsletter that I'm pretty proud of where we just share our own thoughts. We link to other people's thoughts, link to podcasts that we're, that we've either been on or that we love the message, et cetera, et cetera. Try to just be a giver of the, in the universe without expecting anything in return. Um, and if people want to connect and follow me, uh, Twitter's my platform of choice, and it's Kevin underscore McArdle. And I know you'll link to it, but McCartle has one C and uh, love connecting with uh, business owners or anybody out there in the world, you know, giving it their best shot.
1: And Kevin will put all that in the show notes at builtthesub.com. Thanks for doing this. Thanks,
0: John. It's been a lot of fun. And there you have it for today's episode between Kevin and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then always be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode, then share this podcast out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, you can head over to our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can actually do so at our YouTube channel, which is at builttosell.com. Radio. So if you're not a subscriber to our YouTube channel, I would highly, highly recommend that you head over to YouTube, search at Built to Sell Radio, and subscribe to our channel there. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the opportunity to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts at helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. I look forward to talking to you again next week.